Hello and welcome to another episode of Back to Britpop. It's me, Chris. On this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Ed Borry of Smash. Smash were formed in the late 1980s in Welling Garden City. Held as being New Wave of New Wave by the musical press at the time, they had some great success. Ed talks to me about life in Smash, what he's been up to since with writing new material, and we talk a bit about the amazing uh, documentary Flawed is Beautiful which came out in 2016 and was directed by Adam Foley. If you've not seen that documentary please seek it out it's on Amazon Prime at the moment. It's it's brilliantly put together and just a heads up before I play the interview there is obviously some fruity language a couple of c-bombs so just so you know I hope you really enjoy the interview Ed is on top form. As per usual as well I'll be back at the end to talk about how you can support the podcast but in the meantime here's Ed. Welcome to the podcast, Ed Borry, how are you? I'm great, thanks Chris, uh, thanks for asking me to come on. How's your last 12 months been, or dare I ask, how's it been for you? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it's kind of okay for me, I've got uh, a wonderful fiance and her children are here and my children come up every couple of weeks, so there's, there's, there's still a lot of people in my life and there's still a lot of hugs and touching, so... You know, I feel very grateful for that. And, you know, I can imagine if you, you were on your own and, and you didn't have that touch, that would have been pretty tough. Yeah. I think the, most, the most distressing thing in the, in the past 12 months has been watching this disgraceful government, you know, lie and cheat and steal and humiliate us with all their... You know, every day is a good day to bury, bury bad news with this government. It's been incredible. I, I haven't felt so much rage since Thatcher was in power. Yeah. I think every day is um, another shocking revelation. It's kind of like uh, screaming into the abyss at the moment. I don't really know. Yeah. I don't really know. It's, it's almost like we have a, 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 a version of Trump's America here. You know, it's just complete, yeah. completely. I, I know. I mean, I, as I say, it's been, it's been feeling like it was back, back when Thatcher was in power and mm. the fury I have inside about this. Uh, it's good for songwriting, though. <laughs> yeah, I imagine it is. Yeah. Well, what what have you been up to um, most recently? In you had some new material or some solo material that you've been working on. Um, is that sort of songwriting st- still something that you're doing sort of every day or try to do as much as possible? Yeah, yeah. And and you know, the past twelve months in a Zoom meetings, you can play the guitar and you mute, mute yourself, Chris. You can play the guitar <laughs> in a Zoom meeting. <laughs> oh yeah, I've got to try this. If it if it, if it's video on, I, I lay the guitar across my lap and play it like a steel guitar, so they can't see it. They can still yeah. see my top half, and <laughs> I'm tingling away. And in actual fact, I I rewrote "I Want to Kill Somebody" in a Zoom meeting, just yeah, a couple of new chords. And you you mentioned there about finding new things to to write about, or at least having inspiration to write new songs, but. Are you finding that yeah. the writing is it different now? Maybe there's a little less momentum now, but it is pretty much the same. It's you know, I write words down on paper or, or on my phone. I twiddle away on the guitar and come up with some nice melodies, and then I stick them together, and then something else comes out of that. that I mean, the, the main difference over the past two years is that I don't rehearse every 
every week with a band. I suppose having less musicians around you, does that does that help or hinder you in terms of the creation process? Uh, makes no difference at all. Are you um, finding that the, the, the current political landscape of things then is just like spurring you on in terms of the, the content then? Or is or do you find different things to write about? Or can you without that kind of background? Yeah, I, I mean, I, when, when Smash broke up for the third or fourth time, I said to our old manager, I said, I can't stop writing songs. And he said, that's because you're a songwriter yeah. and left it at that. So, Chris, I'll just carry on writing songs for my own therapy or, you know, it's always nice to share them, but I just like sitting there playing guitar. Where did it all kind of begin then for you, Ed, in terms of the like that that spark of imagination to be able to think that you could write and maybe even just did that go hand in hand with like uh picking up the guitar and learning an instrument I, I always wanted to be in a band but I didn't think about writing the songs the the very very early days I guess I'd play the guitar and someone else would write the words hmm. but I, I think that changed quite quickly when I I began to have a lot to say so then I'd write the, play the guitar and write the words. Were you kind of influenced by anyone specifically in terms of like the writing side of things? Was, there, was it like a musical household for you as well? Well, growing up, I've got two older brothers. So in, in the living room, my mum would be playing Simon and Garfunkel and the Stones and the Beatles. And then my oldest brother would be playing the Doors and the Velvet Underground and the Stooges and Genesis. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like to slip in a Genesis quote now and again, even though I'm not very fond of them. <laughs> and my other brother would be playing Slade and Blondie and Soft Cell. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I, I didn't have a, a tape player or a record player of my own, but I liked, you know, on, on the TV, the music programmes. I mean, I really liked ABC and A Flock of Seagulls and... Heaven 17, pop music, basically. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I liked catchy pop music. And when did it kind of, like, the realisation that you, you had some sort of songwriting ability? Was there, like, can you remember your first song that you penned? No. <laughs> I, I think the first song I penned was probably, it would have been with Salvatore, who went yeah. on, and he would, have been the, he would have been the singer at the time in Smash, but he went on to be the bass player and I wrote and sang the songs. But no, I can't remember. But I love, occasionally, I'll remember one of those old songs. And they're so lovely, aren't they? The, the sweet innocence of those first, you know, couple of chords and the first line. One of them was called A Hundred U's. Another one was called Happy. They're just great, you know, teenage songs. Yeah, yeah. I don't want nobody else was one of them. <laughs> I don't want nobody else. Yeah, I'm oh. 17. <laughs> <laughs> that sort of optimistic outlook. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, you you guys um, rehearsed. I think you were relentlessly rehearsing in in uh, in Welling Garden City, where you kind of formed. Um, as a three piece, did you have like an idea of kind of what you wanted to achieve within your sort of musical career if you could call it that at that stage uh no no I, I don't I mean I certainly didn't I I really don't think we did I don't think we thought further than the next flyer for the next gig or the next demo tape I mean I certainly didn't I, we, 
you know it, it turned out we're, we're not I'm not a career musician it wasn't I didn't think it was going to be my job was there a point when the momentum started to kick in and you started to get the interest from you know labels and things like that uh, did you did you kind of get together and think this this is happening or did you have the conversations about did you want it to happen actually because you know that you kind of were against that kind of the, the commercial and the, the product you got you were such a homegrown DIY type outfit and yet this the sort of corporateness of, of record labels was that something you decided you had to make a decision that's actually you wanted to pursue I don't really know what happened there we had a fa- our, the, our drummer Rob's brother was helping us he was our manager mm. and uh he'd he'd helped us get some demos together and so I think he he took all of that on his shoulders I, 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 it, it wasn't concerning to me. I mean, I mean, I guess I wanted a record deal so I could make records. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess from what you're saying, it wasn't that important who you signed to. It's just the fact that you wanted to get your music out to a, to a bigger audience. Well, well, it became important who we signed to because we we eventually signed to uh, Dave Boyd at High Rise Records, and I heard one of your guys on the podcast was it from Embrace. Yeah, talking about Dave, Dave Boyd, yeah, and uh, and he was fantastic. And basically, the the bottom line is that when when uh, Dave Boyd got interested in us, a few other people got interested with in us, and uh, we asked what the guy from uh, Polydor. We said, "Would you release a single called Lady Love Your Cunt?'" And he said, "Oh no, maybe not." <laughs> and we're like, "Okay, see you later, mate." Because <laughs> Dave Boyd's going to release a single called Lady Love Your Cunt. <laughs> <laughs> and, and David was fantastic. The whole the whole uh, team at High Rise Records were fantastic. So I like to think that the Spice Girls paid for my musical <laughs> career. <laughs> we were really well looked after because David just got Virgin to pay all the bills. And uh, it was brilliant. I couldn't ask for anything more from a record label. I mean, a lot of stories I've heard and from, from the guests we've had on the podcast is that uh, the initial support is good and um, you are given free reign, essentially, for the first album. Is that something you 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 can testify to, that, you know, you're, you're given freedom, basically, to, to, to create something and put it out? But it gets trickier as it progresses in terms of second and third albums. We were given free reign, but I listened to... Uh the guy from biz on your show and it probably would have been better if we hadn't been given free reign if i'm honest yeah or or, or at least if we'd been given some guidance because we we went on tour and then we went into a residential studio and i think it would have been better if we'd if we'd come back to hertfordshire and recorded in our old studio with andy mm. uh yeah it, it was difficult. It was very difficult. I mean, have you got that album, Chris? Have you got Self-Abused? Yes, I've got the album. Yeah, I've got it. That's the thing. It's, it's not an easy listen, is it, Chris? No, but that's the thing. I mean, at the time, <laughs> yeah, well, I know what you mean. But it, it at the, for me at the time, it was exciting. And it was that was the perfect, it was the perfect music for me. I was, I was on. Really? Own. I mean, <laughs> I have, uh, people have written to me saying it helped me through my A-levels or O-levels. And I'm like, bloody hell, really? <laughs> well, I was, I, I, I always say, I mean, I was into everything. And I think um, I 
my I'd been in Metla, you see, from my early years. Yeah. Oh, okay, that would work. Yeah. <laughs> so I was in. I was listening before I. I would say became musically mature. Not to say that heavy metal and rock isn't mature, but you kind of you either kind of migrate from that or you stay with it. I think, and that's kind of what I what I can gauge from like metal fans but I, I mean I was listening to thrash and death metal and stuff like that uh, with you know my, yeah, brother, my yeah, brother was a big influence and I and then I, I sort of got into a bit more yeah the British scene and the grunge thing obviously and then but yeah anything that was raw I kind of I kind of gravitated to but then I can as, as things went on I, you know I went country but uh, as you do but uh, <laughs> you sort of um <laughs> I, I found all that exciting I just found everything about the music scene in the 90s early 90s and then just really exciting interesting I was at college you know I was it was the perfect time for me you know I, I think smash is was and is quite niche it's quite I mean it's highly charged it's very political and and I don't think that it was never going to be Britpop Chris it was never going to shift a lot of units uh, the songs you know there was no I, I fucking heard this phrase I didn't even know what it meant but I heard it again it, there was no top line there was no formula there was mm. no um, kind of connivance in the songwriting we just wrote songs that we wanted to you know we, we all had jobs and then on a Wednesday we'd go to a rehearsal room write a song about killing politicians and go to work the next day. It, it wasn't like a formulaic songwriting that was designed to shift units. So you, you toured and toured and um, I mean, that must've been exhausting. Uh, and, but is it something that you, you just loved as well? It's not really, is it Chris? You sit in a van for eight hours and then you go <laughs> and play for like an hour. It's not that tiring, is it? Who, who's gonna tell you that's tiring? <laughs> you eat ginsters and drink super malts all day smoke fags is that is this was your ideal lifestyle then <laughs> yeah. sleeping on people's floors we slept on people's floors until um at the windsor old trout my lung collapsed and then the management thought perhaps we'd better book them into a hotel oh god uh, and the next night we were in manchester and I went to the doctors and he says, you've got a collapsed, collapsed lung. And then the next night we were in Hull. So I went to hospital and had it expirated. And then in the afternoon, we recorded Shame for, Kill, for Top of the Pops was... with a freshly expirated lung. And you felt, did you feel quite good? I mean, was it a good feeling? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was brilliant. It was proper, this studio in Hull. Because you have to re-record your stuff for, unless you're Chesney Hawks, you have to re-record your stuff for Top of the Pops. I think he's the only one that ever got caught not doing it. So we went into this tiny studio in Hull and re-recorded Shane for Top of the Pops. It was brilliant. I love that it, sort of stuff. Was it um, was it a career ambition then to be on Top of the Pops, or was this just something you felt you know? If you're off no, it wasn't. A, <laughs> it wasn't a career ambition. It was a. 12 year old boys ambition but yeah it wasn't, it wasn't in the career i mean early 90s and all throughout the 90s it was did you see it as a as a rite of passage for for your kind of music as well and and, and something that you know top of the pops was in, in a way 
paving a way in, in a slight way because they were having bands on that hadn't released any music. I mean, menswear being yeah. one of them, you were first in that respect, I'm guessing, without the single release. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Rick Blacksill was brilliant. Our uh, we, we were on tour and our um, radio plugger, Scott Peering, brought Rick Blacksill to see us in Luton at this kind of sports hall in Luton. And uh, and then and then a couple of weeks later, he had us on top of the pops. Of the uh, was was uh, Simon Mayo there? Was it was it who else would have been pre- uh, presenting it at that time? Anybody else caught up in Operation Yew Tree? <laughs> <laughs> you can cut that bit out if you like, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who the DJ was that night, or the the, the VJ, or whatever. <laughs> Um, but um, Tim Booth, we met Tim Booth. That, that was really nice. He was very encouraging. Yeah. And our drummers claim to fame. He'll always pull you up if you, you know, if you're trying to big yourself up. He'll say, "Yeah, have you had a wee next to a BG?" <laughs> that is an accolade, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, I've got something similar. I did have a, I did have a wee next to Chris Martin, but that, I mean, it's not quite the same. <laughs> Quite, they both sing falsetto. I mean, <laughs> and I'm sure you, I'm sure you were uh, use it to to the best of uh, you know as best you can. Oh, it gets have you me. had a wee next to Chris Martin? <laughs> yeah, gets me into all the places. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I wanted to talk about Britpop and and actually uh, when you when you look at bands like Smash and that you know, the, the new wave of new wave as it was penned by. Well, the, the musical press at the time, I'm guessing. I mean, did you guys, you know, in terms of fashion and what you look looked like and how you presented on those in that sort of media, well, definitely preceded the, the Britpop scene. Did you see that kind of starting to develop as you were sort of going through your early career? We were we were alive between '93 and '95 in the sort of greater public eye. Yeah. And, and I, I think, you know, what I think where we came from was, you know, kind of Nirvana, Pixies, the kind of dark, the dark days of grunge. Mm. And, you know, about 90, 93, 94, that was still OK, but it was the end, the tail end of it. And, you know, by, you know, mid 94, people just wanted to snort cocaine and sing about nursery rhymes, didn't they? Well, I definitely wouldn't put you in, in the, the Britpop pigeonhole, but it, you would you preceded it. I think you influenced it in terms of fashion, the style, and and I think the way that um, like the musical press they, they they kind of covered bands, Qatar bands. That's what I think and how I remember it at least. Okay, um, okay, that, well that'd be nice. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean our, our drummer was the fashion. Rob, the, the drummer was. I mean when we when we. Uh, in about 1991, Rob managed a shop. He, he had a shop selling vintage clothes and American rags. And so we dressed, he, Rob dressed us basically. And so Rob was the fashion guy. So he, he you know, I guess he preempted a lot of that stuff. Yeah. And then these animal men were wearing the Adidas gear, you know. We we wore a bit of Adidas gear. We knew we knew some rascals in Manchester who, <laughs> who took Adidas gear out the back of the shop for us. <laughs> Your experience with uh, the music press then, because this is another sort of uh, corner, 
big subject for us in terms of the the podcast and, and the guests we've had on is the the love hate relationship, or at least some of the the coverage in Enemy and Manity Maker. What what was it like for you? What was your experience with with dealing with with those publications? It was fantastic, absolutely fantastic. We had a great press and promotions company. We had we were with Hall or Nothing, who had the Mannix and the Radiohead, among many others. And now our, our contact there was Cafe St. Luce. And we had a great time with the press. I mean, Stephen Wells and Martin Goodacre came on tour with us. You know, Stephen was a journalist for the NME. I mean, you had we had the NME on tour with us, basically. And so getting on the cover, would that have been something that you would have been really, would have been another sort of tick of the box for you in terms of, uh, I don't know, some sort of musical highlight, career highlight? Yeah, it's fantastic. And... and my brother's got all four or five or six or however many front covers we did downstairs in his basement. It's brilliant. It's brilliant to see. It's amazing. What are you looking to do next then, Ed, in terms of uh, music? I'm just the next, the next release is a, is a four track EP that I've recorded at uh, Mick Jones's studio, the bunker with, with some, heroes of mine so i'm i'm getting that together it's getting mastered at the moment and would the uh the would the, the goal be to tour with that um no <laughs> <laughs> i'd like to i'd like to do a few gigs i wouldn't really like to do a tour <laughs> is that... three three gigs maybe five chris five <laughs> push it push the boat out <laughs> yeah the documentary is 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 a really good uh, insight into, I mean, all that footage as well that's there as well. I mean, how how did that, yeah. that how did that come about? Did it um, were you approached to, to do it, or was it an idea that you all had together? Uh, no, we were approached to do it by an amazing uh, guy called Adam Foley, who had who had written a book called Straight Outer Columptum, which is where he lived in Exeter. And uh, he'd, he'd just written about his growing up years and Smash and These Animal Men, along with quite a few other bands, were part of his, of his growing up. And then uh, he, he decided to, you know, he's, he wanted, he'd written a book, now he wanted to make a movie. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, he, he, he did a load of um, interviews with with us and all the journos at the time and all the movers and shakers at the time and and made the most moving documentary. You know, it's an amazing documentary for the, for the highs and the lows and there's a, a little bit of hope at the end. It's yeah. fantastic. And at the end of it, we we played heaven with, uh, with these animal men and sold it out. And it was just, it was just such a wonderful, wonderful atmosphere. Would you... Um... Would you do? Would you do it all again, Ed? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would. Yeah, I don't regret a thing. Um, is there anything you would do differently? Um, well, Smash ended because of my my uh, increasing drug addiction. Hmm. But I don't think uh, I, I don't think I'd even change that. I mean, it's. It's just how it is. It, and, you know, the recovery from drug addiction is, 
I'm very, very happy with it's made me a far better person. And I'm I'm very, very happy today and back in touch with both Rob and Salv and lots of other musicians and people from the past and and uh full of new songs and experiences and yeah, I wouldn't change a thing. Would you give any advice to any young bands that are like starting up but that are doing this sort of you know, pursuing a career in music? as well in terms of what would be the best approach well my approach was Keith Richards and Lou Reed were my idols I wouldn't recommend that as your approach (laughs) 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 you know I I built you know I built my life around being a a heroin addict and and then at the age of about 33 I discovered that when he was singing waiting for my man he was actually singing about speed so I was like for fuck's sake I built my whole career on the wrong drug (laughs) oh god and you can't really go back I know (laughs) wouldn't change a thing Chris Um, I wanted to quickly ask you about um, the video shoot for I Want to Kill Somebody. And and uh, it's it's a great video. Um, and it obviously epitomizes everything about Smash, really, in, in, in what, three minutes, I guess. What was that day like? Because, um, I mean, it, it look, it's crazy, isn't it? Well, again, that's, that's uh, thanks to David Boyd. Uh, Stephen Wells, the NME... Uh, journalist and video maker actually because he did make our video for Shane just said lads I need five grand shoot a video and we were like okay I'll go and ask David (laughs) (laughs) and he we we had our we we were probably I think we'd just come off a tour we so we had all our lights and staging and it was it was done it in the in the grounds of this strange house that I was living in at the time called the house was called folly next door was called farce or we might have been called farce (laughs) anyway and we we just set up the stage and the lights and and uh shot that video with you know we wanted to kill some fucking Tories because they're they were and still are horrible horrible people so that that kind of like uh the the political content of everything was just something you you felt that you always had to was at the forefront of your of your of your music and it was it was and and you know anger and fury i mean you know the um this the song self-abused you know if only one person told the truth we could do away with news share each other's views on matters of fact Mm. and that's you know that's 25 27 years old and it's more true today than ever if only one person you know there was supposed to be 750,000 fucking lunatics marching in London on Saturday or was it 10,000 and were there eight police dead or were there eight police injured or were there no police injured Mm. you know it's just complete bullshit you know when we were on Naked City we did um Bang, 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 which was about the killing of three IRA members in Gibraltar. And although we played it on Naked City, 
they did edit out all the juicy bits. Yeah. So if you were in the studio, you heard the full song, but you didn't if you were watching. Ed, it's been fantastic to speak to you uh, uh, this evening. I'll let you go. Can you give us an exclusive on the EP? Well, Mick Jones plays guitar on it. He plays bass on it. He plays some very, very strange keyboards on it. And uh, the the lead track, maybe next time, has got a, a female singer on it. It's got my uh, stepson's girlfriend singing on it, and it's absolutely amazing. It's one of the best songs I've ever written. And, and in terms of release, do you think that's something for next year? Uh, no, it'll be released as soon as possible on my label, which is called Esprit de Corps, which is the last um, three or four Smash albums have been released on my yeah. label. We do, Smash do have one gig booked at, booked at a festival this summer, a local festival, and uh, Rob got us the gig and we're just going to make it a little punky little set, old school. We are a garage band after all. Ed, it's been fantastic to speak to you. I really appreciate you taking the time and uh, to go over. Thank you, Chris. And um, good luck with the, the EP. I'll, I'll drop you a line and hopefully you let me know when it's out. So I'll, well, I'll keep it on your Facebook page anyway, because you'll drop the information there. So you, is that how you're sort of reaching people uh, now is via the, the, the Smash Facebook page? Yeah, and my own Facebook page. Yeah, it's yeah. all Chris. Somehow, I'm I'm an admin on four pages, and I've no <laughs> idea. I mean, you know, because when when Salvatore left the left Smash for the first time, me and Rob did a band called Boswood. So I've got a Facebook page for that, one for Smash, one for Floyd is beautiful, one for me. <laughs> just... Your um, yeah, your social media icon. I'm massive. <laughs> Chris, it was great to speak to you. Yeah. Thank you so much for asking. Thanks, Ed. Cheers, Chris. Massive thanks to Ed for joining me on the podcast again. I really enjoyed talking about Smash and his experiences in the 90s and beyond. Uh, here's the boring bit of the show. Um, I, I'm not sure what to do with this bit. It's kind of like a weird, r- repetitive thing I do. And so, sorry about that, but... Again, if you haven't already, you can support the podcast in loads of ways. You can follow on social media. So there's Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And also, if you haven't done already, big things that support podcasts in this like massive, overcrowded podcast world is writing reviews and giving star ratings on Apple Podcasts for some reason. It just basically boosts you up the charts and you may get noticed. But if you haven't done that, if you wouldn't mind that would be great and I know I say that every week and the other thing I say every week is if you want to buy me a virtual coffee you can it's three pounds and the link is in the show notes which you can find on your podcast app that you're listening to this on so that's the ramble over I'll try and think of something to make it more interesting in future but I'm not sure how I'm going to be able to do that Uh, but I hope you've enjoyed the show and thanks for all your support see you on the next episode (laughs)